Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with support from Pratt & Whitney, committed to working smarter, cleaner, and greener today for a more sustainable tomorrow. Learn more at prattwhitney.com. Dohop, revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn how to unlock unlimited connections simply at dohop.com. And Sirium, the world's most trusted source of aviation analytics. Visit Sirium.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Scott McCartney, and I want to wish everyone a happy Aviation Groundhog Day. On Aviation Groundhog Day, the LaGuardia Groundhog comes out of his hole right beside runway 1331. Puxatani Phil may have not seen his shadow this year, but LaGuardia Larry sure did, meaning at least six more weeks of turbulence in the airline business. Ben Baldanza, there are a lot of shadows being cast upon airlines these days, aren't there? For sure. Happy February, Scott McCartney. It may be six more years of winter for some parts of this industry. All I know is that whenever you think sunny skies are ahead, it doesn't last long. Yeah, right you are. Well, one airline executive who does have a crystal ball, clear or cloudy, is Mike Leskinen the Chief Financial Officer of United Airlines. Mike comes to the CFO's position from a career as an industry analyst, so he is quite used to making forecasts. I talked to Mike a couple of days ago, and he has some very interesting and insightful things to say about this crazy business. Eager to hear. We also have some interesting news, including Boeing, saying it has no crystal ball for 2024. The company said it couldn't offer any outlook, but it is seeming to take more responsibility. It's as if Chief Executive Dave Calhoun saw his shadow. Or maybe it was just a pack of angry airline executives and worried travelers coming after him. Boeing narrowed its losses for the fourth quarter and the full year, but that wasn't the big story. Calhoun took full responsibility for the MAX 9 door plug that blew off an Alaska Airlines 737 in flight and said the company was focusing on safety. Of course, Calhoun took over at Boeing four years ago after two deadly MAX crashes and promised to institute a safety culture then. Why hasn't it happened over the past four years? Calhoun says Boeing is going to go slow and fix itself. To that end, he said he can't make any estimates of what 2024 is going to be like for Boeing. Let me help. Boeing is going to owe MAX 9 customers hundreds of millions of dollars for the groundings and it is going to have more delays getting the MAX 7 and MAX 10 certified and more delays getting the MAX 8 and MAX 9 delivered. United was one airline that publicly gave Boeing a vote of no confidence and said it was considering dropping the much-delayed 737 MAX 10 in favor of 
presumably Airbus A321s, if it could get A321 delivery slots. Good luck with that. As you'll hear soon, Mike Leskinen from United is going to have a few things to say about Boeing and other capacity constraints on the industry. Boeing certainly has a max problem. The question is, can Airbus capitalize? I'm not sure, but the industry is better when both are producing. Yeah, that's that's really true, isn't it? Okay, Ben, a couple of other news items of note. JetBlue put forward its go-it-alone plan to return to profitability. And surprise, surprise, board member Ben Baldanza, it includes a new seat fee called Core Preferred. Core Preferred, in airline speak, means aisle or window. These are regular coach seats behind even more space rows, and now that'll cost between $10 and $49, depending on the flight. Customers with elite status will be able to reserve them for free. American, Delta, United, and others already charge for seat location, of course. Last week, we talked about Frontier retaliating against big airlines which have pumped capacity into ultra-low-cost carrier leisure markets by launching 52 new routes in traditional full-service airline business markets, including hub-to-hub flights like Charlotte-Dallas, Minneapolis-Atlanta, and Chicago-O'Hare-Denver. Well, Frontier is doubling down on its appeal to business travelers. It's offering what it calls a BizFair bundle, available only in travel agency global distribution system computers that includes a carry-on bag, priority boarding, an extra legroom seat at the front of the aircraft, free cancellation, and changes for no added fee, plus free same-day standby and same-day confirmed flight changes for the fare difference when a change is made at the airport. The bundle is not an extra fee. It's a business class type fare. I think this frontier strategy change is really significant. Big airlines are going to have to lower fares and maybe move capacity to protect their core markets. You said last week that Frontier CEO Barry Biffle likes big city routes with lots of traffic where he can skim some travelers off with low fares and fill airplanes. But this is starting to feel more like a bloody fist fight. ULCCs have been losing money for four straight years, in part because big airlines are replacing lost business travel by taking market share on leisure routes. Biffle is saying, you punch me in the face, I'll kick you in the gut. The only winners in these fights are usually travelers who temporarily get to enjoy very low fares during the fight. This is an interesting one to watch, but let me ask Scott. Frontier still flies often only one flight a day in most markets. Even with those features bundled in, do you think they'll attract much business? No, probably not. I think you're right about that. But I think that one flight may force other airlines to adjust schedules to sit on top of it um, with one or two flights uh, in, in some way. And I think it lowers the, the basic advertised price, and there will be some matching on that. 
it'll be interesting to see. I, you know, I don't think Frontier is going to take over the Charlotte Dallas market, but Charlotte is America's most profitable hub. And it's interesting that Frontier has gone heavily into Charlotte. And so that may erode some of the profitability for American. And at the same time, I think uh, Barry can find some small business people, some, um, you know, plenty of premium leisure travelers or leisure travelers who will like that bundle and are willing to go uh, with an airline that only flies once a day. I think that's right. And what you're really right about is the big guys won't ignore this. Right. They can't. Or Frontier will make too big an inroad. Right. It may be one flight a day, but what they sure don't want is two flights a day, right? So if Frontier has some success, then there will be two flights a day. And Ben, one more for the Swifties. As they usually do, airlines added flights to the Super Bowl city, which this year is Las Vegas, from the combatants' hometowns, San Francisco and Kansas City. Rarely missing a marketing opportunity, American added two Kansas City departures soon after the Chiefs beat the Baltimore Ravens with the flight number 1989. That's the title of a Taylor Swift album, as most of us know. Karma is getting your airline free advertising just by referencing the current most publicized romance in the world. And Scott, you probably heard that there's a report that Taylor Swift is singing in Japan the day before, but taking a private flight to make it to the game on time. Yes. So the calculation goes something like this. Uh, It'll be a 12-hour flight-ish, and there's a 17-hour time difference. So if she leaves late at night, Saturday in Tokyo after the show, uh, she'll arrive Saturday evening in uh, in Las Vegas. Uh, the, The interesting thing about all this, Ben, is that we don't know if she has a landing slot in Vegas, um, but there's so much private jet traffic at the Super Bowl that the landing slot system is put in place, and you have to have a reservation months in advance. And so either she's going to have to uh, find a way to pull strings and get a slot or trade with somebody or buy somebody. I've CBS has slots. I'm sure they will make sure Taylor gets there. Or she could simply fly to uh, Los Angeles and uh, drive or fly or, I don't know, get there some way from L.A. Shouldn't be a problem. I, I suspect one way or the other, thanks to the, the marvels of modern air travel, she will be there. And that kind of problem is one the biggest pop star in the world should be able to solve. Absolutely. And if she wants to fly commercial, apparently there's an ANA flight that'll get her there. So speaking of important marketing, Airlines Confidential wouldn't exist without our sponsors. And we are very pleased to welcome a new sponsor, Cerium. Cerium offers the most accurate and precise data and analytics to enable airlines to optimize planning, operations, and passenger services. The right intelligence drives operational efficiencies 
enables you to predict market shifts, and helps airlines respond quickly to maximize revenue, manage costs, and seize commercial opportunity. Cerium's broad range of aviation data products and analytics are designed to ensure planners and operation managers have access to the data they need on demand or integrated into your existing data systems or delivered as part of a passenger solution. The most trusted solutions to plan with confidence and operate efficiently. Visit Cerium.com for more. That's C-I-R-I-U-M.com. Scott. Yeah. It's great to have them on board. Maybe they could help Boeing also. <laughs> Let's hope. Let's hope. <laughs> Boeing needs all the help it can get. But Cerium, uh, I've used Cerium data for years and uh, and absolutely appreciate what they do and, and love how they put it together. It's been very informative for my stories over the years, and I'm thrilled that they'll be providing uh, data exclusively to us as well. And we very much want to thank Pratt & Whitney. At Pratt & Whitney, the pursuit of more sustainable aviation is foundational. For decades, Pratt & Whitney has been at the forefront of revolutionary advancements in aircraft propulsion technology. And by working smarter, cleaner, and greener today, They are committed to supporting the aviation industry in its goal of reaching net zero CO2 emissions by 2050. Learn more about Pratt & Whitney's smarter technology, cleaner fuel, and greener business at prattwhitney.com. And we also want to thank Doohop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Doohop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offer services and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, lower costs, and maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, Duhop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit duhop.com, that's D-O-H-O-P, Now, let me just add, Ben, Airlines Confidential is just so thrilled and so honored to have such high-quality sponsors. These are terrific organizations in our industry, and uh, and we really appreciate the support that they give this broadcast. So now let's bring in this week's guest. Michael Leskinen was named United Airlines Chief Financial Officer in September. He was president of United Airlines Ventures, a venture capital fund focused in part on decarbonizing air travel. Mike started at United in 2018 as managing director for investor relations and then was promoted to vice president of corporate development and investor relations. His background is in the Wall Street analyst world at Oppenheimer Funds and J.P. Morgan Chase. Mike went to school at Arizona State and then got an MBA at Wharton. It's great to have you with us, Mike. Thanks for joining Airlines Confidential. And I want to start by congratulating you on strong results for United in 2023 with earnings of $2.6 billion. Do you feel like 2023 was the year of full recovery for United after the pandemic, that things are back to normal now or at least some kind of new normal? Well, uh, thanks very much, Scott, for having me on the show. It's a real privilege. Um, I'm very excited to take on this new role as Chief Financial Officer of United Airlines and have an even greater impact on the success of United and our industry. 
you know, as they think about 2023, 2023 was not the year that we executed the full plan. It was the year that the plan came together and it became clear that it was working. But as we look at the next five years, we certainly see uh, continued margin expansion in an industry that has structurally improved. And so we're on the right path, but we expect margins to continue to march higher. Won't be a straight line higher, but continue to march higher over the next five years. This airline industry has changed, uh, fundamentally changed. Two main trends uh, that that are underlying that uh, is a decommoditization on the revenue side. So customers are choosing to travel that uh, in a way that's not simply based on schedule and price, and that is new. And cost convergence because of the scarcity of inputs into this industry, be it uh, labor, aircraft, or gates. And so with that, what was the biggest profit driver? Was it international last year? Was it premium products and, and that, um, that revenue change that you were talking about? Or was it uh, the loyalty program and the, and the monetization that's gone on there? You know, at United, we do have a unique position. And so unlike some of our competitors that have uh, hubs that drive all or more than 100% of their profits, and then they have uh, other areas where they are growing into and hope to drive profits later, every single one of our hubs earns a profit. In 2023, international was very strong, but so was domestic. You know, it is a little bit interesting. If you would have thought that as we entered this pandemic, that the rebound would have been driven by the leisure consumer and less by business, you would have thought that United would have had a significant disadvantage coming out. Um, And and the truth is that as our network was configured going into the pandemic, that would have been the case. But our team, uh, our network team, well, the entire team, our operations running great, the product that we're offering, and the network team being very nimble and putting the aircraft where there is demand um, led to a very different outcome. And so as I think about 23, it was what was most magical to me, and it really part of this was in this very visible in 21 and 22, is that we led the industry on unit revenue in every single quarter, despite the fact that leisure was leading business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating that that the full service airlines have, you know, essentially that that business travel, uh, the chunk of business travel that hasn't come back has has been replaced by by leisure travelers. And you moved airplanes to markets where people want to go and and maintain yields by having people buy up. It's sort of an unexpected consequence of the pandemic or, or the or the technological improvements that have changed business travel, that those people would be replaced by leisure travelers. You know, what's, uh, what, what is truly remarkable, um, but the business customer has come back. I mean, we're back at 2019 levels for business travel, but our economy is 20 or 25 percent larger. Yeah. And so we, we, we are, you know, it's a slow pace, but we do expect that that gap to GDP for business to continue to narrow. Uh-huh. But what we're seeing on the leisure side is that, you know, and I think it's a broader trend among millennials, it is, a, it is a change in spending habits more broadly, where consumers are spending for experience and, and less on things. And part of the vacation experience is the flight. 
And so the willingness for consumers to uh, pay up for a better product, better service, better reliability, it's, it's becoming really visible. And what's the outlook for 2024? I, I know you expect a first quarter loss, uh, but bigger profits for the full year. What does this year look like to you? You know, Q1 for United and for the industry, but for United in particular, is always always a seasonally weak quarter. That said, without were it not be for the Max Nine grounding, yeah. we would have been very very near break even profits for the full year. We're expecting, and we gave guidance for nine eleven dollars in EPS, which is flat with our ten dollars and five cent of earnings in twenty twenty three. Um, and we're not happy with that. We, we, we internally certainly have targets that will exceed that level. Um, with volatility in fuel, with delays from Boeing, um, which is delaying the growth of our, you know, our growth plan from United Next, there are some headwinds. I'm optimistic we're going to be able to exceed that guidance, and I'm optimistic that we have enough uh, idiosyncratic opportunities that we will um, that, w- that that the tailwinds will will exceed those headwinds, but um, that's where we are now. And you know, having spent 20 years on Wall Street before joining United, it is very important that we set expectations. It's important for the whole industry that we set expectations in a way that we we regain, we earn investors' trust. This entire industry trades at multiples that. Um, you know, uh, are at the bottom decile of yeah. the S&P 500. And that's because we've got a track record of making promises and not delivering on those promises. Mm. I'm committed to changing that. Uh-huh. So one of the things United's talked about a lot has been cost pressure hurting or even killing uh, LCCs. And and as I look back, uh, I mean, Frontier, uh, Spirit, and a couple others, um, they've had losses for the last four years. Why can't LCCs pass along higher costs like other airlines are doing? Yeah, I think it's not quite as simple um, as you described it. It is a component of it. You know, it's a, it's a recurring theme in these questions around the consumers willing to pay for a better product. The ULCC model was was founded and really thrived on the idea that it is just price and schedule and that you could cram as many passengers into that tube and um, and then uh, rack them up with ancillary fees and the consumer would keep coming back. And I think that there's a growing awareness of the different product and different experience on a legacy carrier, be that United Airlines or our competitor based in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, really, uh, the, the two of us taking a very different approach to to the to the product and service level. Uh-huh. Now, what really accelerated the, the what I would say is an inversion in margins, right? For 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 several decades, ULCCs and LCCs, they their margins were two or three x the margins of the legacy carriers, and now our margins are high single digits, to heading uh, heading to low double digits, and the LCCs are break even at best, and some of the ULCCs really deeply in the red. The combination of the revenue uh, differential, but now because there's a scarcity of labor, a scarcity of aircraft, a scarcity of ground infrastructure, those airlines cannot grow. They do not get the juniority effect of fast growth for that reason. Mm-hmm. And as uh, as assets come up for bid, be that labor or aircraft, 
there's a there's a broad uh, cost convergence. And so while all of us have been surprised by higher and continued elevated inflation of inputs, the ULCCs have faced a disproportionate um, a disproportionate year-on-year increase. And so what that, you know, so the whole nature of their existence, I mean, it's in their name, ultra-low-cost carrier. Those costs now, while they'll be in some cases still a little bit lower than a legacy carrier, their incremental growth costs every bit as much as our growth. And the, in, the, in the delta in their costs uh, has, um, has greatly diminished. So, and I just don't see a, cha- a structural change where those costs deconverge. Uh, the nature of labor and the nature of the long longevity of some of these assets, uh, those costs have converged. I think they're here for good, and that's uh, and, and I think that's going to create. It is tougher for the ULCCs, but it's going to create a structurally stronger industry, and we're end up having a better product for consumers. And I think the industry, if we if we execute properly might just finally be in a decade where our return on invested capital exceeds our cost of capital. Hmm. Hmm. You, you mentioned for this quarter the MAX 9 groundings. There are a lot of capacity constraints in the industry. The air traffic controller sor- shortage, that must impact Newark for you. Um, the uh, Getting the getting MAX 7, MAX 10 certified. The, the Pratt & Whitney engine repairs have, have grounded hundreds of airplanes. Has taking all that capacity out helped or hurt United? I imagine with less capacity, you get more pricing power, but then, you know, something like the Max 9 grounding uh, just takes away revenue for flights you can't operate. Look, this is a competitive industry. And so part of the reason we have been boomed to bust is whenever the industry starts to see profits, we grow until we uh, create so much excess capacity that those profits yeah. turn into deep losses. Uh-huh. And so having some constraint to supply in the long run, there are some some benefits of that. But having constraint to supply that is in a haphazard way, in a way that you did not prepare for, in a way that you didn't sell your uh, tickets for, is really, really disruptive. And I say that because we're building the infrastructure, we're hiring the crews, to meet a certain amount of capacity. And those costs then become fixed in the short term. And then when we don't get the aircraft, it's really, really disruptive. In United, because we're competing with a decommoditized product and we're trying to drive connectivity through our hubs, that incremental capacity, we've proven it. And I would have been a naysayer in my role at JP Morgan, but we've proven that that incremental capacity we're bringing in without disrupting our unit pricing and TRASM has remained quite robust. So for us, and I will only speak of for authority for United, the uh, this disruption from the GTF relatively small for us, but the MAX 9, a significant, significant headwind to our profit trajectory. Now, we're going to work closely with Boeing to try to get things back on track. We won't fully get back on track. We're going to have to pull some of our growth ambitions back to meet the reality of those supply constraints. But without a doubt, the aggregate impact of those constraints has been lower profits in the short term. And the MAX 10, um, five years late or so already, Scott Kirby's talked about this some. Is there a loss of confidence in Boeing at United? Um, how, how would you characterize things right now? How, do you, how are you feeling about Boeing? 
we're all frustrated with Boeing. We have no partner that is more important to United success than Boeing. And so we're going to work with them and, you know, partners have good times and bad times, but we got to remind ourselves of that. But the, uh, this most recent incident is, um, is extraordinarily frustrating. And, um, it, 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 it speaks to the culture. Um, and there needs to be some cultural change at Boeing. They build great aircraft and they build safe aircraft historically, and they will get back on that track. Um, but this has been, you know, as Scott says it, uh, this has been the straw that broke the camel's back. And so we are going to have to, um, adapt our fleet strategy for the reality that Boeing, the path to get back to the Boeing we knew is a multi-year path. Mm. And and you mentioned the uh, Pratt & Whitney GTF. You guys, interestingly, selected the GTF this past summer for future orders, and it was a big vote of confidence for Pratt. It's an interesting situation. Um, has Pratt handled their challenge a whole lot e- easier, better than, than Boeing, or is, are the two comparable in any way? Yeah, it's a good comparison, and um, I um, many of the suppliers in the industry have had issues, and Pratt certainly with the powdered metal issue, um, it is a problem. I don't think that Pratt has a cultural issue. I think that they um, they had some quality issues with some of their suppliers. Um, they are working through that. The path to work through that is not going to be a quick one, but I don't have the same concerns around the cultural. Um, the cultural issues at Pratt, I have confidence that team will fix it. It's a matter of when. And in the fullness of time, I think that the, for, certainly for the larger uh, larger variants of the 321 family, that engine is going to be a great engine. Hmm. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit uh, and go back to loyalty programs because uh, one of your tasks during the pandemic was you, you led the the, the large borrowing United did against Mileage Plus. Loyalty programs across the board have gotten heavily leveraged. Um, tell us about that. Was it, was it a hard sell to get people to understand the importance of frequent flyer programs? Or is it now clear that, um, you know, I've, I've said sometimes airlines are really uh, frequent flyer programs with wings. You know, um, I am so passionate about the loyalty program. Um, when I made my midlife career change from Wall Street to uh, the airline industry, uh, the loyalty program was kind of like a twinkle in my eye. Uh-huh. Um, this was a uh, this is an asset that we have that is just there. It doesn't get enough respect, and uh, my dream has not been fulfilled. Uh, this asset is an asset that. Uh, has earnings that are capital light, that are scalable. The margins are uh, extraordinary, and, and and we've only begun to tap that. And so during the pandemic, you know, the the, the longer term expectation here is that we drive uh, more of an earnings multiple, right? Because the cyclicality of the earnings from the loyalty program, the growth rate of the earnings from the program, the free cash flow generated from the program um, does not look like airline earnings at all. And so there's a tremendous opportunity to open uh, the equity market eyes to the, to the, you know, 
what should be a 15 times, 20 times earnings business. And so our work is not done there. That said, as we entered into the pandemic and we needed liquidity to, uh, to protect the business so that we could put ourselves in the position we did, uh, it was very important to uh, try to raise capital in a way that was efficient. And as we looked at a world that did not think that flying was going to return to what we have now you know, returned to, uh, the traditional assets to borrow again, be that, that we would normally borrow against slots, gates, routes, older aircraft, those are not particularly great collateral to borrow against. Um, the loyalty program, however... We took some time to have to show that to, to Wall Street and to creditors. But as they understood um, as they understood the business, as we educated them on the business, it became very clear how stable in almost any scenario that earning stream was. And so it, it gave us the opportunity to borrow money at a very attractive rate for the time. And, um, you know, it was uh, it was uh, it was really fun to see everyone else in the industry copy us afterwards. Yeah, yeah, um, I, I think that um, you know again we're at um, we're in the second inning of uh, realizing the value that the loyalty program provides. I think that there are different flavors though of loyalty program. I think that you have large legacy carriers with committed customer bases. Um, where that loyalty program has tremendous, tremendous value. And I think that there, then you have smaller carriers where it's customers taking a trip or two a year, and those loyalty programs will prove to be um, have much less staying power. Um, but expect to see more from us, Scott, on the loyalty program and how we help, um, A, grow the earnings stream from that business, and B, open the capital market's eyes to just how valuable it is. It, 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 to me, it, it's just fascinating. Um, and, and we've seen airlines do interesting things, almost sort of loss leader type things of, uh, you know, Delta puts it makes Wi-Fi free. You have to be a member of the loyalty program. So that that's done to drive loyalty program signups. And, and then you hope those people will get the credit card. Um, or b- basic economy fares. And I think you guys are, and or American have talked about bringing in new customers, taking market share from, from LCCs, and those people join your loyalty program, and then maybe they get the credit card. I'm curious about the sustainability, though. It seems like this could all fall apart if, the, if there were limits put on the swipe fee or if the, the banks found some other reward that uh, or some other way to reward their customers uh, that suddenly became more attractive than free trips. Well, there's a whole lot to unpack in that, in yeah. that, in that statement, <laughs> yeah. Scott, but let's, yeah. let me try to take a, a stab at uh, unpacking some of it. Firstly, can uh, our partner, Chase, who is a great partner, um, as you think about different loyalty programs out there, there are programs like the Sapphire program that are, um, you know, really a cash back program with some extra, um, with some extras around the edges. The problem with programs like that is that they, they can quickly be commoditized. It is the next bank wanting to give a bigger portion of the swipe fees back. Mm-hmm. They don't have a unique product to offer. They don't have a unique, um, uh, unique levels to offer to the consumer that, uh, that is, that is, you know, whether it is 1K or, or moving up in our, in our loyalty system. And so the stickiness of the airline 
airline loyalty system is really compelling. And so there's nothing out there that I think that can match it. There's a couple programs globally that will, I think, become the leading pro already are, but will be cemented as the leading programs. And, and they're just aren't good alternatives. And I don't think there will be. Now, you asked about legislation around swipe fees and interchange. Look, this is something we're watching closely at United. Um, that said, the, uh, the interchange, as you can see through the program, this is, this is consumer friendly. This is what uh, our customers uh, want. They want credit cards where you get rewards. And that is all formed on the foundation of these interchange fees. And so uh, we think that as uh, legislators understand all of the facts and understand where the where the where the vast majority of those economics go that it is consumer friendly and therefore it will not change excellent well mike thanks very much congratulations on it all um we really appreciate the insights uh today and look forward to talking to you again as as things develop down the road thanks very much thanks scott this was fun today take care Promotional consideration provided by the archive.net, celebrating 20 years with a fresh new look and over 60,000 items of AvGeek goodness. It's the hub of air transport history, and you're welcome aboard the archive.net. Thanks again to Mike for his really interesting comments. You know, Scott, when the CFO of the largest airline in the world speaks, people listen. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Mike's got such an interesting background, um, having been an analyst, I, I think. Uh, and we've seen other analysts become CFOs. Um, they, they really bring a lot of insight to the job. And I thought he shared some great insights with us. Really appreciate him being on the show. So, Ben, I want to remind listeners that Airlines Confidential will be on stage for a keynote podcast at Aviation Festival Americas on May 15 and 16 in Miami Beach. This is the 16th year for Aviation Festival Americas, and it brings together more than 250 influential leaders from the United States, Canada, and Latin America. If you'd like to attend, Listeners can get a 50% discount by going to airlinesconfidential.com, clicking on the Aviation Festival banner, and using the promo code AC50. It's going to be a great event, and we're really looking forward to being part of it. Okay, in the mailbag this week, David from Los Angeles asks a very timely question. Hi, Ben and Scott. When American and United rolled out their basic economy offerings in the 20-teens, that product offering was ballyhooed as a way to compete directly with ULCC pricing. And then it seems like we didn't hear much about basic economy until the last year or so. So what's your take on the threat basic economy poses to ULCCs? United last quarter bragged about an increase in basic economy revenue, but their fourth quarter chasm, cost for available seat mile, was about 17 cents. Meanwhile, to use an example, Frontiers was just under 10 cents in Frontiers' most recently reported quarter. Setting aside that United can subsidize basic economy with front-of-the-cabin fares, isn't it fair to say that a United basic economy seat must yield a substantial premium over a ULCC seat in order to offset higher costs? Assuming the answer is yes, 
one would think it wouldn't be too difficult to command that fair premium because of the network and other benefits of flying a legacy carrier. But that's been true for years. So why is everyone just now talking about basic economy again? Has something changed at the low end of the fair market? What do you think? Great question, David. You're right. If United was thinking of every seat the same, but even when he was an American, Scott Kirby would say on his marginal seats, meaning seats that otherwise would not be filled, his costs are as low or even lower than the ULCCs. So it may not be the case that they will charge more. Also, offering the fare and actually selling it are two different things. Great points. I, I think, too, I would just add that, that there is more attention focused now because the big guys have gone into leisure markets in such a much heavier way uh, to replace the business travel that they lost. And so because of that, they've talked about the increased use of basic economy because they're appealing more to leisure travelers who would have previously flown, perhaps, on a ULCC. The, the big guys are clearly taking market share. The other thing that I think is so fascinating right now about this end of the market is that the big guys are really kind of looking at this in some ways as a loss leader to bring new members into their frequent flyer program. And the frequent flyer programs have become such a driver of profits so if you can sign up a new member and then maybe get them into the United credit card, you not only likely are going to bring them back again and again as a loyal United uh, traveler, uh, but you're going to start getting revenue from them off credit card spend or the baggage fees that the credit card covers or the early boarding that the credit card gives you. Banks all pay the airlines for that. Um, maybe even lounge access, the sign-up bonus. That's all revenue for, for the airlines. So why not uh, go take some market share, bring in new customers with your basic economy fare, and monetize it in other ways uh, through your loyalty program? That's the game of the big guys now, for sure. Okay, another question, Ben. This one from Daniel at Florence, South Carolina. Scott and Ben, I love the show and appreciate your taking our questions. I've got an airline airport terminology question for you. How do airlines define focus cities, hubs, and fortress hubs? Does one airline's definition of what it considers, say, a hub, different from what another airline considers a hub? And if you don't like how airlines define these terms, how would you define them? Thank you, Daniel. Good question. I don't think there's a commonly accepted definition of these terms. Often they're used by others, 
not the airline itself. That said, I would define a fortress up is one where the carrier has 70% or more of the flights. You have to control the pricing and demand to make it earn the fortress modifier. For example, Delta at Detroit is a fortress. A hub would be anywhere you connect travel. Lots of those in the U.S. And most of what Southwest does are hubs. Focus cities are where you fly more than just to your hubs and fortress hubs. So if American, for example, flew from Kansas City to Dallas, Chicago, Charlotte, DCA, and Miami, all hubs, but also flew to New York, Las Vegas, and Cancun. That would be a focus city. Do you like those definitions, Scott? I do very much. Yeah, 70% for Fortress Hubs uh, feels right. And, you know, it's it's funny that you're right. These are not labels that everybody agrees on, not labels that airlines apply to themselves. I've never heard an airline refer to its own hub as a fortress hub. The other guy's hub is always a fortress hub, right? But fortress hub is really a, a term that, that media came up with. I think the difference between focus cities and hubs is really... Uh, a focus city is something where you want to start building a hub, right? You don't yet have a full hub, um, but you're you're starting to add out and back uh, more point-to-point services. A, a regular, um, you know, point on the map, you're just flying to your hubs from, from there. Focus cities, you start branching out in, into other markets besides just your hubs. Um, and then once it gets big, it, it becomes a hub. Um, but I think airlines are reluctant these days to call something a hub um, because that has a lot of connotations to it. Uh, it's much better for them to say, hey, we're going to we're Delta. We're going to make Seattle a focus city. Um, if we say it's going to be a hub, then there's a lot of expectation for um, international service and all kinds of connections and infrastructure and terminals and, and all of that. Uh, and then it's a big deal when you close the hub if you have to pull out. But a focus city, you go in, you give it a try, you see how it works, and maybe it works and maybe it doesn't. Also has competitive reactions. Mm-hmm. It's uh, what you call it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's a it's a great question and, uh, and one that um, we can continue to debate whether – Somebody's operation is really a hub operation or really just a focus city. And certainly, you know, Southwest uh, never wanted to call anything a hub because they didn't want to be a hub and spoke carrier. So everything is a focus city. 
but you're right. They do. Uh, you know, I, I connect all the time in, in Nashville sure feels like a hub to me, but, um, but they'll call it a focus city. Well, Scott, before we go, I want to say one more interesting thing. My new class has recently started, and I surveyed my 27 students and asked them whether worldwide airline demand for 2024, do they think it'll be more, less, or the same as 2023? It was an interesting mix, but most said fewer travelers. Wow, and that's a that's a prime travel population, right? Yes. And young people love to travel. Uh, that's fascinating, Ben. I Do you agree? Surprised. I don't. I think it'll be more, but they all gave good reasons also. I might side with the students. I think it's going to be a fascinating year, but I think the the Capacity constraints are real and in some cases expanding. And uh, I, I, there are some, some parts of the economy, certainly more in other parts of the world than in the United States, but uh, plenty of economic challenges. And um, it's going to be really interesting to see. Um, but um, I think there, are, you know, there may well be fewer travelers in 2024. And I asked them not to look at any forecast. I wanted their intuitive view. Excellent. Well, I know we would all love to be taking your class, but um, thanks for bringing a little bit uh, each week of both your, your wisdom and your questions for students to us. I love it. Thank you. Well, have a great week, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Airlines Confidential. And thanks again to Mike Leskinen. We'll be back next week with much more. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.